Good evening, everyone. My name's Dave. If I haven't met you before, I'm the Assistant Minister at St Mark's. There's a documentary, and it's called Tell Me Who I Am. It's on Netflix. Tell Me Who I Am. And the words that start the documentary are these. I don't know who I am. Not just the story of who I am, but who I really am. The real me. When he was 18 years old, Alex, the guy on your right was involved in a motorbike accident and he was in a coma for three months. And when he woke from the coma, he couldn't remember anything except the face of his twin brother, Marcus. So he saw his brother Marcus and he said, Marcus, but he knew nothing else. And so over the coming months, Marcus would show Alex photos of his childhood to sort of reintroduce Alex to himself. There were photos of Alex when he was younger at the beach. And so Marcus would say, we used to go on beach holidays when we were young. There were photos of them having a a winter holiday in Europe, that they they lived in Europe. And there were pictures of his parents, you know, describing, and Marcus would describe their relationship in glowing terms. As far as we were concerned, the viewers, we thought Alex had been given a privileged existence with loving parents. Alex was loved. And then, Marcus, the brother, admits, I painted a picture of a normal family, but none of it was true. It was a fantasy that I was creating for him. Alex reflected later on, the one person that I absolutely trusted betrayed me. Now, the documentary is worth a watch, but it's not for the faint-hearted. It's one of those documentaries that you watch and you sort of think, oh my goodness, this world is so messed up. And I'm not speaking um, of Marcus's actions. There's much more to the story. Um, But the point is that identity really matters. Who you are, your understanding of yourself really matters. So Alex had no memory of himself. He didn't know who his friends were. He didn't know his girlfriend. He had a girlfriend. He didn't know her when he woke up. He didn't know his home or his neighborhood. So he didn't know who to be. He didn't know how to live. Identity really matters because it tells you or shows you how to live. So for instance, if you see yourself basically sort of deep down um, as a failure, That will show itself out in your actions, in those pressure moments. Your view of yourself will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you see yourself as, at some point in life, having um, sort of been very unfairly treated, when push comes to shove in the relationships you're in, you might do that to others. If you see yourself deep down as securely loved, that will show itself in how you live. Identity is sort of like a home base. We return to it again and again, and it's either a home base that sort of strengthens you and sort of readies you for life again, or it's a home base that sort of, sort of doesn't help. And tonight, in the passage before us, John wants to tell us who we are. So this series has been that you might know, and John really clearly wants you to know who you are. So let's read the passage on page 1054. Well, let's, let's read the first three verses. So, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. 
I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. So in that passage, there's a really clear structure. I write to you and then a group is named because and then there's a sort of a reason. That's the structure. Uh, Something to point out is that when uh, John refers to children, he's not literally referring to uh, people below the age of 13 or something. He's referring to the church. John, through the letter, obviously sees himself as the sort of spiritual father of these people, probably because he was involved in their coming to Christ. And so he calls them throughout the letter, little children, dear little children. And so the children refers to the whole church. There's a couple of sort of details to be aware of. But I have two questions when I come to the passage. Why are the two subgroups, so there's children and there's two subgroups within the church, why are the two subgroups male? So uh, women are included, obviously, like I said, in the dear children because they're a part of the church, but why are they not referred to in the other uh, subgroups that are named? That's my first question. And my second question is, what's the significance of the because clause to the group? Okay, so twice, um, the fathers... Uh, um, instead of them, he writes to them because they know the, uh, who is from the beginning. And the young men, in both occasions that they're referred to, it's because they've overcome the evil one. What's the relationship between the group that's named and the because clause? That's a question I have. And so when I come to these questions, uh, when I come with these questions, I was convinced by one particular commentator from a, a commentary that was described last week. Uh, The commentator says this. He says, We are not to make too much of the parallels between the because clauses or the different titles, children, fathers, and young men. All of John's addressees have been shaped by God through the forgiveness of sins, knowledge of the Father, and overcoming the evil one. So the point I want to make is that all of us, all Christians are included here. We all are included in the forgiveness of sins, knowing the Father and overcoming the evil one. So when I talk about these things tonight, it's referring to us all, the whole church. And so like I said, we're going to cover some really basic truths about who we are. And I'm talking about sort of more basic truths than where you grew up, more basic truths than who your parents are. Now, if identity was an onion, I'm going down to the deep layers of the onion. If you're a Christian, this is who you are deep down. And it really matters, as we'll see later on in the passage, because it it affects how you live. So the first thing that is true about you, I'm sort of putting the photos on the table like Marcus, but I'm presuming that John's trustworthy. The first sort of photo on the table. We are those whose sins have been forgiven. Verse 12, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Now, the Bible speaks so frequently about the forgiveness of sins that the word can become or the phrase can become a little bit tired. It's really easy for that whole idea of forgiveness of sins to become tired. It's so important, but still. It's sort of like when you eat for the first time fresh cinnamon donuts, like the fresh ones just cooked from the oven the first time. You don't forget it. It's beautiful. But if you were to have them every single day, it wouldn't be so, it wouldn't be so good. So I'm going to tell a story that hopefully sort of reminds you of the, the beauty of forgiveness. 
I don't know if you guys have seen Les Mis, the more recent movie, but this is true of all Les Mises or editions. Jean Valjean, okay, he's, the, he's sort of the criminal, he's the bad guy at the start of the movie. He was homeless. He was sort of in an alley, going to sleep the night, homeless again, when a bishop sort of finds him, stumbles upon him. And the bishop welcomes him in. He welcomes into his lavish home. And Jean Valjean, um, on that night when he was welcomed in and had dinner, he was ravenous at the table. He was sort of stuffing it in. Probably had never seen a meal so good. And so he was invited in and had dinner and given a beautiful room and a beautiful bed. But Jean Valjean was not used to such, such decadent treatment. And so instead of sleeping that night, he thought it would be a better idea to take the bishop's silverware and go for it. So you might remember in the movie, he's running away when he drops one of the pieces of silverware and he's caught by the police. And so the police drag him in. They've sort of, they've, um, they've sort of kicked him and, and sort of treated him pretty harshly as they've dragged him in. And the policeman says to the bishop, he had the hide to say, you gave these to him. And so how will the bishop respond? And the bishop responds in song. It's beautiful. I'm not going to try to do it. Um, he says, this is right. As in, I did give them to him. But my friend, he's speaking to Jean Valjean, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. And he picked up the candlesticks, expensive looking candlesticks. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, he's speaking to the policeman now. The man has spoken true, and then he turns back to Jean Valjean. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. It's a real moment in the movie. I wish I could have sung it. It gives us just a little picture of what forgiveness looks like. The bishop had obviously experienced God's forgiveness. And so he gave a bit of a token of it here to Jean Valjean. This is how God treats us. It sort of reminds you of the father in the story of the prodigal son, how the son had done the worst thing to him, but the father just runs towards him and embraces the son when he returns. The forgiveness of God. It's like that. The forgiveness of God is the fresh air that comes into our life. It's fresh air that renews our life. We do something wrong. It sort of gets to us. We confess and God forgives. It's just fresh air. The forgiveness of sins. God is like that. This is who you are. Your sins are forgiven. That's the first thing. Uh, the second, the second. Now, before I sort of say what it is, it's so often, it's amazing how so frequently um, when I'm talking to people and I meet new people, especially people who like sport, it's amazing how I sort of managed to say in, in the first sentence that, um, oh, you know, I, I played cricket with Steve Smith. I knew Steve Smith. I used to say that I had taught him 
everything he knew because I was his captain. You knew that, right? I was his captain. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, I used to say I taught him everything he knew, but I don't say that anymore for, for good reason. <laughs> to understand ourselves properly, we need to see ourselves as knowing the one who is from the beginning. We know the Father. So this is verse 13. And 14. So I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. Now, we're not talking about know as in some type of head knowledge. That's not what know here is referring to, some type of um, intellectual assent. This is talking about knowledge in the sense of relationship, the way I know a good friend, the way I know my wife, the way I know my parents. This is relational knowledge. And what he's saying here is that something that is true of you, one of those deep sort of core truths about you is that if you're a Christian, you know God. And it is so much more significant, mind-blowing, whatever the word might be, than me knowing Steve Smith. I mean, who cares? I hardly know him anyway. He probably wouldn't recognize me if if he saw me. And the fact that I'm so enthusiastic to tell people who like sport... The, the fact that I know Steve Smith, but not so enthusiastic to tell people sometimes that I know God, is probably because I'm not really understanding what it is to know God. So it's so easy for this idea of knowing God just to slip our minds and, and just to, for it to be forgotten about. But we're talking here about knowing the one who controls all things. Knowing the one who, according to Isaiah 40, um, uh, the one for whom all the nations are a drop in the bucket. Knowing the one who's, um, who sees the world and it's but dust on the scales. Knowing the one who picks up the whole earth as if it were grains of sand. This is the God we know relationally. Intimately, This is the God we can pray to. This is the God who hears our prayers and they reach him on his throne. And he hears them and acts. Um, Knowing God means knowing Jesus. The one who shows us the Father. And according to the thematic verse in our series. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you might know that you have eternal life. Knowing God in, uh, through Jesus is knowing eternal life. This is the one we know. So two true things about you. The forgiveness of sins. Knowing the one who is from the beginning. And the third one is that we've overcome the evil one. So I remember studying... Uh, I think it was in year 11 or maybe year 10. I remember studying uh, the Japanese prisoner of war camps. In the Japanese prisoner of war camps, if you know anything about them, um, if you were a prisoner, you remained a prisoner. Um, These camps were known for their very high barbed wire fences. And if you tried to escape, you'd be executed in front of the group. Um, It was also known for how hard they put their prisoners to work. They'd be given around 600 calories a day. And they have to work for 12 hours in factories, in shipyards, in fields and mines. So Harry Carver was an Australian 
a prisoner of war, and he says this, I was a slave. I worked 12 hours a day on a diet of soybeans and seaweed. 12 hours a day on soybeans and seaweed. If you've seen pictures of them, you can't really see them there. They were skin and bone. But here is a picture of the prisoners of war when the Allies had won the war and the US Navy ship was approaching them. They had conquered the enemy and they were now free. John is saying, you have overcome the evil one, the one who has such a stranglehold on our world that used to have a stranglehold on our lives, that used to dominate our lives. And that would work out in the way we'd sin and we'd be stuck in sin. He has freed us from the evil one. We're free. We're free. And we're free not only from sin and its effects and its uh, condemnation, but we're free also from the glitzy allure of the world. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a second. But summing up where we've come so far. So our identity is a layered onion. And if you're a Christian, these are the most true things about you. You are forgiven. Let that freshness sort of just roll over you. You are, um, you, you know God. You know God. And you've overcome the evil one. Now that really matters because it shapes how we live. So verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world... If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. You might remember from last week that John gave us a little bit of a test. Um, If we love the brothers and sisters, if we express love in the way we speak and and act at church and in our lives to other people, then that is confirmation that we know the God of love. Now, this is another test. When the sort of glitzy, like I said before, allure of the world, when the, the sort of the very sort of impressive looking things of the world are put before us, a test of who we are is how we respond to those things. If anyone loves the world... Love for the Father is not in them. It reminds me of the the reading from Matthew chapter 4 that Ali read. Um, The evil one takes Jesus to a high mountain and he showed him the kingdoms of the world in all their splendor. And the evil one said, If you bow bow down and worship me, I will give you all these things. How will Jesus respond? Well, his identity was confirmed when he said, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. His identity was confirmed in that moment of pressure. He was a child of God. Or more sort of accurately, he is the son of God. And that was confirmed in that moment of great sort of pressure and temptation. And so obviously when, when John refers to the world here, he's not speaking about the, the physical world, that we shouldn't love the, the material world. I mean, we, we know from other parts of the Bible that we're to be thankful for it and delight in it, in it. He's not talking about the physical world and he's not talking about people in the world. We know we are to love other people. He sort of specifies what he means by the word world in verse 16. 
Verse 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, what does that mean? The lust of the flesh is the uninhibited satisfaction of desire in something other than God. Okay? The uninhibited satisfaction of desire in something other than God. That is, I have a desire for a sexual encounter and I'm going to go for it, no matter what the cost. I have a, a desire that wants to sort of see myself on the top of the heap. I'm going to go for it, no matter who I trample over. I have a desire for money. I'm going to go get it, no matter what the cost. That's the lust of the flesh, the uninhibited satisfaction of desire in something other than God. The lust of the eyes, these are the temptations not originating from within, but from without us, outside. So we see something and it grabs our attention and sort of the desires of our hearts latch onto it. Like, you know, the car, the holiday house, whatever, that picture of the good life that you want more than God. And so suddenly God has taken a second backseat. That's the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. This is the desire to, um, to sort of have everyone else looking up at you, thinking, how good is he? I want to be like him. It's sort of being, again, on, on top of the heap. It's, it's having the, the picture of that good life and thinking, how good am I? The pride of life. That's what they mean. Now, just about every TV ad and marketing campaign wants to tug at those strings. So Steve Jobs is known for being a marketing genius. He had a big effect on how marketing is done. And so he said, Steve Jobs said, don't market products, market dreams. Don't market products, market dreams. So, so the desires of our hearts might take a little while to sort of latch onto products. It's not always immediately clear how products might be so good. But if, if you make them a part of a dream, your heart will be right there in a second. The lust of the flesh. And he's also famous for saying, people don't understand what they want yet. Show it to them. The lust of the eyes. And then he'd try to make it as clear as possible without actually saying it, that if you buy this product, you will be one of these people. And so one of the most famous marketing campaigns that Apple sort of um, uh, did was the uh, 1997 Think Different campaign. You're probably uh, too young for some of you to remember this, but they tried to make it so that if you bought one of these Apples, Apple computers, in, in his words, you were pushing the human race forwards. You were one of those people. The pride of life. Now, I mention that just to sort of say that John's words here in, in 1 John are just as relevant today as ever. So when we go about our lives, when we watch TV and when we see ads, when we sort of just make our way in the world, when we see other families and we're tempted to sort of want a life like them or whatever it is, when we sort of see other people at school and they've got all the cool stuff, you know, the latest mobile and just life's a dream, they're, they're cool. We're, we're tempted. We're tempted. Our hearts are tempted to latch our desires on other things above God. So there's a battle for the heart that's being waged every single day. We are a part of it. John concludes in verse 17. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever.
So, as I said at the very beginning, identity matters. It really matters. How you see yourself matters. It will affect how you live. And, and John, in this sort of short passage, has put the photos on the table. You are forgiven. You know God intimately. He's your father. And you've overcome the evil one. This is true about you. And it will affect how you live. If this is how you see yourself, you will walk through the world unfazed by the glitz that's sort of on offer. Unfazed by the temptations. And I tell you why, and this is absolutely crucial. You'll be unfazed, untempted for your desires to sort of latch onto other things because your heart is already occupied. The love of the Father is in you. And so speaking of love of the Father, how can we call ourselves forgiven sinners? Absolutely forgiven. How can I have the audacity to say I know God as I know the closest person in my life? How can I say, little David, who's as fragile as anyone, how can I say that I've overcome the evil one? It's all because the Father in the most mighty expression of his glory and his grace, gave us Jesus Christ, the righteous one. By his death, I'm forgiven. By his love for me, I know the Father. And by his resurrection, I've overcome the evil one. It's when we grasp that who we are is a gift from God, It's when we do that that the love of the Father in us will deepen. One famous hymn puts it like this. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you increase in us our love for you. Give us the eyes to see how, just how wide and deep and far and high is your love. Just give us a sense of how much you love us. And Father, win our hearts every day more and more. Help us live a life that is rooted in this identity that you've given us, this identity of being a forgiven sinner of knowing you, being able to talk to you, living life with you, walking in your light. And help us know more and more deeply that we've overcome the evil one, this one who tries to distract us and getting us walking along wrong paths. Father, please help us love you more. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for really helping us. Thank you.